0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabella Breck, and today we'll be talking to David Silverman about his new book, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. David Silverman, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: David, I wonder if you could kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Sure. I'm a professor of history at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., where I've taught since 2003. I was born and raised in Massachusetts, educated at Rutgers, William & Mary, and Princeton University. I live in Philadelphia, I'm married, and I have two daughters.
0: Great. Thank you so much. And how did you come to write This Land is Their Land?
1: Well, my first book, which I published back in two thousand five, was about the Wampanoag Indians of the island of Martha's Vineyard, and that project involved outreach to the federally recognized Aquinnah Wampanoag Tribe of of Gayhead. And in the course of that outreach, I developed a number of long lasting relationships. Uh, they've continued to this very day. And over the course of the conversations I've had with these Wampanoag friends, the issue of Thanksgiving has come up repeatedly. Um, I've heard Wampanoag musings on misrepresentations of them and their history. Uh, I've heard their thoughts about um, about how Americans celebrate um, an event that uh, Wampanoag people associate with their demise. Um. And over the years, I've also seen a number of of active Wampanoag people um, do their best to educate the public about their history as best they understand it. In places like Plymouth Plantation, where there's a uh, there's a Wampanoag village staffed by Wampanoag historical interpreta- uh, interpreters, um, to a variety of, of freelance Wampanoag educators who visit schools and and museums and other educational institutions, so that they can reach the public. Um, and it, w- what struck me over, over the years is just how this celebration of colonialism, centered on uh, Plymouth Colony, the Wampanoags, and um, and Thanksgiving, hangs around the necks of these people uh, like a millstone. Uh, and I thought it. I thought it was high time, with the 400th anniversary of Plymouth Colony coming, and with you know, with all of the uh, the associated public focus on that uh, on that event, to reach a wider audience uh, with this history that that I know well and that uh, Wampanoag people have been educating me about for a great many years. The other factor that led me to write this book is that for many years I've been conducting um, teacher training workshops. Uh, in there, this uh, these workshops are hosted by Mount Vernon Estate and Gardens, you know, the historic estate of, uh, of George Washington. And uh, in the course of conducting these workshops, uh, the one thing I've learned is that if there's uh, one topic related to Native American history that most secondary school teachers address in the course of their teaching. It's the history of the first Thanksgiving, or so-called first Thanksgiving. Uh, And most of those teachers uh, will readily acknowledge that they're ill-equipped to teach this history with the depth and detail that it it deserves. Um, And yet, they all teach it, you know, nevertheless. Um, and it, it struck me that those of us who know this history well um, have a responsibility to help these educators on the front lines of reaching the public to do their job better. And so it's those influences that have led me to write this book.
0: That's certainly reflected in the intro. Um, When you open up to the intro, it becomes immediately clear that this isn't your run of the mill Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special. Uh, We (laughs) first meet Frank James, a Wampanoag man who, in protest against Plymouth City Council, publicly commemorated the last Thursday in November as a day of mourning um, in 1970. So why start there? Why start with Frank James's story?
1: there's a a couple of different reasons. I think one is it's startling to the general public who very rarely think about modern native people. um you know the the attitude of of the American public, generally speaking, is that native people are relics of the past. Um, most Americans don't think of Native people as their fellow Americans and as modern. And so I thought beginning, with modern Wampanoag people reflecting on the past would be powerful. I think – I I also believe that confronting non-Native Americans with Native people who mourn on a day when other Americans are giving thanks would be startling and open up an opportunity – to educate, educate people about the long history about how Wampanoag people, including Frank James, came to that moment where they felt that they needed to, in a very public way, uh, demonstrate that celebrating colonial history under the auspices of the Thanksgiving holiday was hurtful to them.
0: Right, certainly, and that remains a theme throughout the book. In chapters one and two, you show us that the myth of Thanksgiving even precedes the Mayflower landing. The Plymouth colonists weren't wandering into a wilderness, um, for sure. Uh, So can you tell us a bit more about why those first two chapters are so important to understanding this history?
1: There's a great deal of ideological freight that one needs to cut through in order to do justice to the dynamism of, of Native American history. And... A great deal of that has to do with this notion that Native people were frozen in time in some kind of Stone Age existence until Europeans arrived on the scene, Um, that they inhabited a wilderness, um, and that the Americas were a new world for Europeans to discover. Um, as opposed to being a place that had been inhabited by people creating civilizations over the course of thousands of years right. um, and so I thought it was important to begin with what I call the Wampanoags old world, um tracing their thousands of years of of history and the great developments that characterized it. What's more, unless one begins with that long history, it becomes very difficult to understand why Wampanoag people did what they did when Europeans arrived. Um, one of the points that I try to make in the book is that, well, you know, Wampanoags didn't just react to the English, but that rather in in many ways, what they were trying to do is pull the English into their own very complicated tribal and intertribal politics, and to understand those politics, uh, one needs to understand their political structures, their economies, and how they had evolved over over time, and the very cha- and the types of challenges that these people faced on a regular basis.
0: And after several years of these kind of seasonal conflicts with Europeans that you talk about in those first couple chapters. The Wampanoag are dealt a seriously devastating blow. Um, that three-year smallpox epidemic proved so shattering that by the time that Tisquantum, who's one of the main players of the story, returns to his home at Patuxent, his kin are nearly wiped out. And you define that as how a silence in the historical record can speak louder than the voices that are present. So how did you go about writing that silence in the historical record into existence? Right, so
1: you know there are two issues to uh, to address here. You know, one is that there's a long prehistory, if you will, um, of European contact um, between you know the Wampanoags and uh, European explorers and and slavers and and traders before the arrival of the Mayflower. I think that you know the Thanksgiving story suggests that. Um, the arrival of of the Mayflower is a first contact episode. It's, you know, it's nothing of the sort. The Wampanoags had had over a hundred years of contact uh, with, with Europeans before before Plymouth's founding, and yeah, you know, that was a, a, a violent history. Um, it, it involved uh, a, a series of European slave raids against uh, against the coast, um, often in the context of of uneasy trade uh, between the peoples. And one unfortunate accident of uh, of that interaction was the introduction of a a disease that we can't identify uh, contemporaries called it a plague, not the plague. Um, it might have been smallpox we it, we just don't know. Um, but you know in 1616 uh, some European vessel uh, introduced this horrific epidemic disease and um, to the Wampanoags or one of the groups of people that they uh, they traded with, and you know this disease ran riot along the coast between Main Saco River in the north and the east side of Narragansett Bay in in the south. And I I highlight in a chapter that I call Golgotha. Um, you know Europeans who stumbled on uh, onto the scene after this epidemic. Um, called Wampanoag country, Golgotha, um, after the hill uh, where Jesus was crucified and uh, that was littered with the human remains of uh, Roman executions. I The the silence that I highlight in this chapter was the kind of palpable reluctance of, of native people after colonists arrived to talk about what had happened to them. Um, the English were deeply curious about this epidemic. It it seemed to them to confirm the omnipotence of their god um, and the righteousness of their colonization of what they saw as a depopulated uh, country. And so they they certainly took note of it and um, and asked native people about it and. Uh, it's easy to sense in the historical record that Native people did not want to talk about this tragedy, uh, which had killed, uh, you know, we don't know the exact numbers, certainly more than half of, of their people and and, and perhaps uh, much more than that. And part of what I, I want the reader to walk away from that discussion with is this sense of trauma that Native people had experienced in this epidemic, Um, and how that trauma is what set the stage for the Wampanoag's interactions with, with Plymouth colonists. It's only when we grasp that the Wampanoags had been devastated by this disease, that they didn't know what it was or where it came from, and that their loss in population rendered them vulnerable to Attacks from their Narragansett rivals to the west, who appear not to have uh, suffered the disease, that we can begin to understand why the Wampanoags under their uh, under their sachem Usamequin or or Massasoit decided to reach out to the English at Plymouth. You know the Thanksgiving myth would have us believe that the Indians, and they're very rarely identified by tribe, um greeted the English and fed them and taught them how to live in the country because they were innately friendly. Well, you know, the Wampanoags were not innately friendly. Again, you know, they had a, a century of, of violent interactions with European explorers, traders and and raiders. And it's pretty clear from the historical record that they had a robust debate within their ranks about whether to wipe out Plymouth. Um it, uh, you know, before it could uh, gain a, a solid foothold in in their region, they decided not to. Um, they decided rather to try to harness Plymouth's resources to their own end, so that they could defend their independence from the Narragansetts. Um, and I think uh, I think we can all agree that is uh, quite contrary to the uh, characterization of Wampanoag people in the Thanksgiving myth.
0: Right. Certainly. Um, And yeah, by chapters three and four, the Plymouth colonists finally start wandering into this Wampanoag story and this Wampanoag world. And along the way, they're turning up burial sites and stealing food. Um, And like you said, despite these affronts, the sachem Usamequin sees an opportunity. Um, And all of a sudden, the Plymouth colonists are swept up into what you call this river of local politics, uh, and they don't have any control over the path that it really may take. And Usamekwin capitalizes on this. So can you talk a little bit more about his character in this story and his role um, in the existence and the survival of the Plymouth colony in those early years? Sure.
1: So Native people in, in Southern New England, and the Wampanoags in particular, were organized into what anthropologists call paramount sachem ships. And these these paramount sachem ships were, were organized as follows. Um, most native people lived in village-sized communities that were headed by a local chief or sachem. And um, one, as a result, you know, we call those communities sachem ships. Those local sachems, in turn, uh, paid tribute and showed political deference to a regional local sachem or paramount sachem who would lead uh, these, these confederations of, of local sachemships ships in war and trade with foreign peoples by appearances, Usamequin was one of those paramount sachems. So he's first among equals uh, among Wampanoag local <laughs> sachems. And I posit that he had this role before the English arrived on the scene. Historians have actually debated um, whether Usamequin became a paramount sachem because of his alliance. With the English, um, I don't think that's the case. I think there's um, there's it's not direct evidence, but it's uh, there is suggestive evidence um, that he held a prominent role um, within the Wampanoag people uh, before the English arrival. And I think the reason that he held such a role is that his local sachemship of Poconoket on the uh, northeast shore of Narragansett Bay was on the front lines of the Wampanoag's conflict with the Narragansett tribe to the west. In other words, um, Usamequin and his Poconocet um had a prominent military and political role in, in Wampanoag foreign relations. Uh, what's more, the location of Poconoket on Narragansett Bay also made Usamequin the point man in trade with Europeans um, in, in Narragansett Bay, which was one of the uh, the most prominent sites of that trade, with English, Dutch, and French ships uh, showing up to trade uh, for furs with well, Wampanoag people, um, again for for many decades before the arrival of of the English. After the the epidemic, Usamiquin finds his authority challenged. Um, in a couple of different ways. Uh, first and foremost, as I mentioned, you know, the Narragansetts uh, take the opportunity of, of Wampanoag weakness to reduce the Wampanoags to tributaries, um, and that's uh, that's actually fairly well documented in uh, in the historical record. Um, that you know the Narragansetts had forced Usamequin and a number of his counselors to formally um, concede to uh, to Narragansett authority. Um, the other challenge that, that Usumikwin faced is that you know he had Wampanoag sachem ships out on Cape Cod and the islands of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket that didn't seem all that pleased about the prospect of, of paying homage and tribute uh, to him. And so – What I discuss in my book is the way that Usumikwin saw an alliance with the the colony of of Plymouth as an opportunity, A, um, to defend himself against the Narragansetts, both by marshalling English military power and by obtaining European weaponry uh, from the English, but also B, um, that by demonstrating his ability to employ English power where he wished, um, he could get dissident Wampanoag communities to fall back under his authority. In other words, that he could intimidate them uh, into following following his leadership. Uh, So, you know, this is a a real power play on uh, on Usamequin's part. Um, His outreach to the English, in other words, is certainly not just because he was a friendly guy.
0: Right, exactly. And he certainly seems to be, for more or less, pulling a lot of the strings of what's going on on the ground. After a little while, though, the strings seem to get a little tangled. Um, And land sales, which I think is maybe the most difficult part of this history, come to define the ebb and flow of regional politics that everyone is now caught up on. Um, both as a solution as well as a source of intra- and intercommunal troubles. Right. But it's hard to read these histories of land sales now knowing that land sales would quickly lead to irreversible damage. Uh, So how did you go about writing this part of Wampanoag history? What was that process like?
1: I couldn't have written this with with the level of detail – that I did when I started my career twenty years ago. Uh, it's required many, many years of reading through these land deeds um, and learning to read between the lines. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that's fascinating about land deeds. Yeah, and land deeds, by the way, are the, they're the documents um, that the English produced to trace land transfers between uh, Native people and colonists, and for that matter, between colonists uh, themselves. I think one might might assume um, that, you know, these deeds can't capture Native voices and, and perspectives. And that certainly eventually became the case. Uh, but when one sifts through the many, many hundreds of land deeds from uh, 17th century New England, uh, a clear pattern emerges, which is that uh, particularly in the, the early years of colonization, by early years, I mean you know, the first uh, few decades, Native people are uh, do a pretty nice job of making their voices and expectations heard in these land deeds. And uh, when the deeds themselves uh, don't record those perspectives, uh, Native people complain quite loudly to, uh, to English political authorities uh, about their views and, you know, very often have those views captured in print. And so what I learned through those, those readings is that, you know, Native people's expectations of what a land – Sale entailed was quite different from that of the English. It it's not the case, um, yeah, as as uh, popular opinion would have it, that Native people had no sense of ownership of land. No, I, that that's just not true. Um, their communities certainly had a sense of what territory was theirs and what territory was not. Um, and sachems themselves um, assumed a position. And that assumption, by the way, would eventually become a bone of contention within Native society. But they assumed uh, the position of of negotiating with uh, colonial people uh, to cede native uh, native land um, to colonies. Now, what what I've learned is that you know, Native people's expectations of what those sessions meant were quite different from that of the English. What the English assume when they buy land is that um, whoever purchased the land now has exclusive rights of access to it. A, but also B, that the jurisdiction passed from Native people to the English. Um, that's a rather bold assumption. Uh, you know, I often uh, say to my students, let's imagine for a moment that Native people go over to England, buy land. Um, from local people living there, um, would the jurisdiction of that land have passed through that transaction uh, from England to the Native people? And most students say, oh, "Well, of course not." It's like, "Well, that's precisely what the English are assuming in reverse on the other side of the pond." Right. Um, it's 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 quite an outrage. Um, the Wampanoags made no such assumption. Um, that their authority over the land ended with the land sale. Uh, what's more, uh, they also didn't share the English assumption that by buying this land, uh, the English now had exclusive rights to it. Not at all. What the Wampanoags appeared to have intended to sell to sell were were use rights to the land. In other words, what they were selling to the English was the right to build houses on the land, to plant their crops on the land, and even later to graze their cattle on the land. But that did not necessarily mean that the Wampanoags would not have right of way across that land, that they couldn't hunt on that territory, that they couldn't fish in that territory, or for that matter, that they couldn't plant and live on that territory. So in other words, what, when Usamequin and other local sachems sold land to the English – They intended that the English were buying into Wampanoag society, not that the English were buying the land from out of Wampanoag society. In some cases, local sachems also expected the English to pay the local sachem tribute on a regular basis by virtue of having bought into Wampanoag country. There are land deeds in which the English promise that they will – Build the local sachem a house, plow his fields, build him a fence. Um, in, in, in a couple of cases, uh, the English have to, uh, to give a certain um, uh, a percentage of the livestock that they slaughter um, to the local sachem um, as an ongoing payment for the right to operate in that territory. Um so in in these ways and 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 more um you know one sees that Wampanoag and English expectations about land sales were quite different. In turn their disagreements over the interpretation of those land sales would factor mightily into the slow march to war culminating in King Philip's War of 1675-76.
0: Right. And despite Usamequin's attempt to balance and other sachems attempts to balance political gain with peace, Usamequin's own two sons realize the trouble caused by these land sales. Um, and that generational turn, as you said, erupts in 1675 with King Philip's war, um, something that Usamequin and his English counterparts at Plymouth could have hardly envisioned in 1619, 1620. So how and why did it come to that? What What were some of the factors that contributed to what really most historians consider this major, major conflict? First and
1: foremost, it's English population growth. I think it's important for us uh, to keep in mind, you know, the the, the Thanksgiving myth is projecting out it projecting out uh, English and by extension white American dominance of the continent. It's envisioning that the the seeds planted at Plymouth Colony would eventually grow into a great Christian democratic white nation. Nobody on the ground in sixteen twenty could have envisioned such a thing, neither. The English, nor the Wampanoags. Plymouth Colony began with a hundred people, and half of those people died in the first winter. So it, it's important to grasp when we say that Usamiquin was trying to harness the power of the English to his own own ends. We're really only talking about fifty people, right? No one in Indian country could have imagined that within a short number of years, literally thousands and thousands of Englishmen would arrive in Massachusetts Bay in in the famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, Puritan Great Migration of of the 1630s. Nor could they have possibly envisioned uh, that these people would produce families that were on average, that on average uh, had eight children and that their, you know, their population would be doubling every generation. By the time Usamequin's sons, Wamsutta, the English called him Alexander, and Pometacom, who the English call uh, call Philip, by the time they're coming of age, the English population is growing like topsy and rivaling that of Native people in in southern New England. What's more, the English were, particularly the second generation English, um, were becoming quite aggressive towards uh, towards Native people, uh, particularly when it came to encroaching on Native land and jurisdiction. So, you know, we, we addressed earlier the. Um, the, uh, differences in native and English interpretations of, of land sales. Well, you know, the fact that they have different interpretations doesn't matter so much, so long as the native people are getting their way as the English population is growing. The English are asserting their interpretation of these sales on native people, which, you know, obviously is going to, uh, is going to create a great deal of resentment. But there are other issues too, and you know one of the things that's um, that's great about being a historian and working in uh, in this particular neighborhood and, and time is that we have native voices about these these very issues. Um, and indeed, on the eve of King Philip's War, uh, Pometacom, Usamequin's uh, son. Uh, Lays just lays bare his grievances uh, uh, against the English in a conversation that he has with magistrates from the colony of Rhode Island. You know, among the things he says is, "Look, um, you not only do you people uh, buy our buy our land uh, often under crooked circumstances, but you don't even." Uh, keep your livestock on your own land. You allow them to wander beyond your boundaries, and then they trample our cornfields and they dig up our clam bank uh, clam banks. And then when we Native people injure those animals, uh, you you prosecute us for for property damage. Um, what's more, he complains that the the English have been evangelizing Native people um, and through that evangelization, encouraging them to halt their tribute payments to Paramount Sachems like Pometicom himself. Um, And indeed, one of the interesting internal dynamics of the Wampanoag tribe during this period of time is that uh, the Wampanoags of of Cape Cod and of of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, um, who – have been trying to break away from their tribute ob- obligations to uh, the Poconoke sachemship uh, from at least the beginnings of, of Plymouth's founding. Uh, they Im- they invite Christian missionaries into their communities and then use the political alliance um, that that relationship in- entails uh, with the with the English to effectively halt their obligations to Pametacom and, and the other, other Pocono Sachem. So, um, you know, Pametacom and his core followers are bitter about, about that development. And not least of all, um, they're quite bitter about increasing English assertions of jurisdiction over native people. Most native people – will concede that if native people commit a crime within an English town, that's the English business. You know, the English can, can arrest and, and, and punish um, whoever committed that, uh, that crime. But they would not permit the English to exercise jurisdiction within native communities, particularly when the issues were solely between native people. And yet, as one moves into the late 1660s and early 1670s, the colonies are trying to do just that. And the the breaking point uh, comes when um, a, a Christian Indian uh, minister named John Sassaman, he's Harvard educated, who had served for a while as an interpreter and scribe uh, for Pometacom, uh, is we it appears. Executed by Pometacom and some of his men for leaking sensitive intelligence to English authorities. What he tells the English is, Pometacom and his people are are trying to organize a multi-tribal strike uh, against the colonies. Beware. Sassaman shows up dead a short uh, a short time later, and uh, you know the 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 evidence linking that that crime to Pometacom um, is a bit sketchy, but I'm convinced that uh, that. That it's on point. Um, the English then see or arrest, try, and execute three of Pometacom's men uh, for that murder, and that is just a step too far. I don't want to overstate the point. You know, those those murders are not the sole cause of King Philip's War. What they did do is crystallize a series of complaints that Native people had, that showed them that coexistence uh, with with these English was impossible, that if things continued as they were, not only the Wampanoags, but native people generally in southern New England, were going to end up landless and subjugated.
0: Right, certainly. And then we get what becomes known as King Philip's War. Um, and the conflict ends with Pometicom's assassination. But that's not where your history of Thanksgiving ends. Um, The seeds of colonization sowed by English hands in the 1620s continue to yield a crop of corrupted American history. At its roots are racialized concepts of civilization that serve to further marginalize the Wampanoag people to the point of erasure. Yet the Wampanoag resist every step of the way. Um, What forms does this resistance to colonialism take after King Philip's War?
1: Oh goodness! Uh, it takes a lot. Um, I think it's important to note that you know the the way their history is is typically taught to the extent that uh, the Wampanoag people and other southern New England southern New England Indians are acknowledged after uh, the first Thanksgiving. It's in the context of King Philip's War, um, but then t- historical attention to them typically ends, and the the impression that that decision makes is that all the native people were gone, that they had gone, that they had gone extinct. Well, they had not gone extinct. Um,
0: Half the Wampanoags
1: (laughs) fought on the side of the English during King Philip's war, um, and survived the war. Many other native people sided with the English during this war. Um, Mohegans, Pequots, a a small portion of, uh, of the Narragansetts, And they survived, uh, The war. And so colonialism for them continues after the war, and it takes a a number of of different forms. Um, It takes the forms of continued English encroachment on their land, it includes um, English merchants, courts, um, and governmental authorities exploiting native debt to force native people and their children. Into indentured servitude for terms that lasted years, in some cases even even decades. Um, it involved eventually denying that these people were Indians at all, uh, as they began to intermarry with with other peoples. Um, you know, particularly when they intermarried with blacks, uh, white people would define the children of Afro-Indian relationships as black rather than Indian, and you know that's part of this colonial agenda to expand the servile black labor pool and to make the number of native people with claims to the land disappear. So, yeah, in in other words, um, sure, war kills people, um, but colonialism um, designed to render native people extinct takes a number of other uh, more subtle, sinister forms. And that's what native people in Southern New England were wrestling with. Uh, for centuries after after King Philip's War. Um, they didn't respond passively. They made alliances with powerful Englishmen, particularly um, those in, in missionary societies, to help protect what land they could. Um, they acquired formal educations so they could read the documents um, that so affected their lives and respond in kind in writing. Uh, to uh, to Englishmen who wanted to take advantage of them, um, they held on to each other and they they passed down stories that were full of values that were distinct to themselves and uh, and their people, um, and not least of all, and this is a point that I uh, I emphasize throughout the book, they mourned. They they had a sense of what their ancestors what them what they themselves were 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 going through and while white americans began to celebrate their country as a a bastion of of liberty um of enlightenment of christianity of good for the world native people mourned what that colonial world had destroyed um And that helped them maintain their sense of separateness, of distinctiveness across the centuries, all the way up to Frank James and his National Day of Mourning, and indeed, up to this very moment.
0: Right. And you end this history of Thanksgiving with a goal for the future, one that requires less or even maybe no more days of mourning Besides, at the very least, reading your book this Thanksgiving holiday season, how can historians work towards that future where days of mourning may no longer be required?
1: Well, I think one thing we need to do is to decide collectively whether we want to continue to attach this mythical history to the holiday. You know, Thanksgiving had no association whatsoever with the story of pilgrims and Indians until the late 1800s. Right. And, so, and you know, it was a holiday that was celebrated regularly throughout the colonial period. There's no reason why a holiday premised on getting together with family and friends and being thankful for the good in our lives has to be attached to a false history. So one of the challenges that, that I pose to the reader is, look, if we're going to associate Thanksgiving with the history of Plymouth and the Wampanoag's, we have to get this history straight, and um, it's a history that I think most Americans don't want to confront. So I think that would be – the the positive um, result of associating the holiday and, and the history would be to expose the general public to the actual history. Right. Um, moving forward, I think we need to listen to our native countrymen and women about their reflections. on on this history and on the holiday and to understand the ways in which colonization is still very much a force in their lives insofar as they still have to fight for the sovereignty of their communities, their cultural self-direction, the revitalization of their languages and basic recognition as distinct but constituent parts of of American society. and so I, I think reflecting on the real history of this holiday is an opportunity for all of us to think about what kind of country we want to be moving forward. Do we want to be one that celebrates white, white colonization? Or do we want to be a pluralistic country in which we listen to the voices of our countrymen and women who have been the victims of that colonization over time? with the idea that perhaps we can do better moving forward.
0: Well, David, we've taken a lot of your time today, but before we wrap up, I have just one last question for you. What are you working on now?
1: Right now I'm doing an awful lot of reading um, and I'm, I'm considering putting together a, a book proposal that would be a, uh, a wide ranging uh, history of Native people in American racial history.
0: David, that sounds like another really important project. I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care.
1: I did too. Thank you so much for having me.